We want to begin tonight with part 13 of Defending Your Faith. We are continuing in this series, and we have thus far in the second major section of this series dealt with some of the more well-known cults that demand our attention and our knowledge. We come tonight to the cult known as the Unification Church, or what is more popularly known by that designation, the Moonies, and their founder, Sun Myung Moon. Let me tell you a little bit about them. You know that in this series, we have spoken to you about the origin of this group, uh, giving you initially some present-day facts about them, and then working our way back to their origins, and then talking about some of what they believe, and then even grabbing some dialogue from you as to how you might defend your faith against one of these cults. This is one of, again, the major cults in the United States of America in which we have much to do. The Unification Church is one of the best-known cults, and yet it's also one of the cults in which they disguise themselves as to what they're all about and how they come upon unsuspecting people. It was... Of course, not always the case with many cults. Uh, many of them used to be uh, very secretive and they didn't want people knowing much about them. And then as cults grow in their popularity, some of them become uh, very well known to people and they come right out with what they believe. In fact, several of you told me that a couple of uh, weeks ago, I think it was in the Sunday paper uh, two weeks ago now, last Sunday, in which uh, the Mormon church had a major uh, advertisement within the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. And there are some cults that have taken that tack. They want to come right out and tell you what they believe. And yet there are some cults who, while not wanting to be secretive, they're wanting to grow, they want to do it surreptitiously. They want to do it in a very, very subtle way. They want to be able to tell you not what they're really all about until you have already come into the grips of that particular cult. Well, today, just as the Mormons are very well known for their social welfare programs, their family values, their uh, wholesome lifestyles, and uh, yet you will not always know about them that they believe in many gods, that even they could become a god of their own planet. So the Unification Church, the Moonies, are better known for their support of conservative values, of right-wing political causes, and for their belief that their founder, Sun Young Myung Moon, is the new Messiah sent to propagate the teaching of the Unification Church on the earth. You might be interested to know that the Unification Church owns the very conservative and oft-quoted Washington Times newspaper. If you were to listen to, for instance, Rush Limbaugh or some other social conservative uh, they often will turn, instead of to the more liberal Washington Post, will turn and quote from the Washington Times because it is very, very conservative. Now, like I mentioned the Christian Science Monitor some weeks ago, the Washington Times is owned by the Unification Church. So, uh, beyond the thin veneer of conservative values, the Unification Church is no more biblical or no more Christian than Mormonism or the Jehovah's Witnesses, or Christian science. Let me tell you a little bit about the Unification Church so that we can 
gain a handle on them. You might know them only as those who would be dressed up as monk-like people selling flowers in an airport. How many of you have ever, ever seen those moonies doing that? Yes, a number of us have. You go to any major airport and you will often come across someone who's selling flowers. They're not always looking like they're monk-like, but many of them are selling flowers on behalf of the church. And I'll go to their financial dealings in a moment. The Unification Church was founded, as I said, and led, still is, by, I think, 80-year-old self-proclaimed Messiah, Sun Myung Moon. And they have become quite new age in their belief system. They have a number of distinctive features. One is they have a habit of conducting their business, especially recruiting into their movement under uh, multiple pseudonyms, sometimes even anonymously. They have combined Western and Eastern ideals together, and they have a number of misinterpretations of Scripture, especially under the guise of Eastern religious teaching or Eastern mysticism. The Unification Church could be further characterized by what appears to be the obvious and widespread and forceful psychological pressure that they foist on members of their group to conform and to remain loyal to that group at all costs. You might have even seen a film that was done a number of years ago uh, on the Unification Church called Heavenly Deception. How many of you have seen that particular film? Several of you. This is a very, very provocative film and a very enlightening one about uh, a young man who has come out of the Moonies now and who is a Christian. And I'll mention that maybe if we have time at the end. Now, the Unification Church has a lot of principles and a lot of ideals that is much akin to the Hare Krishna cult movement. Transcendental meditation, or even the church universal, church triumphant. On January 6, 1920, Yong Myung Moon, which means Shining Dragon Moon, was born. Who later became, as we know him, Sun Young Myung Moon, was born of Confucian parents. January 6, 1920, they were humble farmers, and he was born in a province in North Korea. The family itself converted to Presbyterianism, the Presbyterian Church, in 1930. But because they had uh, initially a part in Confucianism and also ancestral worship, Sun Myung Moon was very influenced by that, and he retained much of the veneration and the, the ancestral worship that was common to Confucianism. And I think that that has been largely what has influenced him as he has tried to bring together much of Confucianism, much of Taoism, and much of Eastern mysticism within Christianity in some sort of blend to try to bring it all together. In the early life of Moon, he had what he reportedly himself says was a vision. April 17, 1936, at the age of 16. And what he said about this vision was that it was a vision of Jesus. Now, one of the most uh, astounding confessions that I've seen of any of these cult leaders was this vision of Moon. And in fact, 
you might have remembered that in the early 80s, Sun Young Moon was taken to court because of uh, tax evasion issues. And when he was put under oath, in fact, in 1982, during this lawsuit by the federal court, the IRS, against the Unification Church and against uh, Moon himself, uh, he made an amazing statement. He said on May 27th and May 28th of 1982 that he had met Jesus. This was back when he was 16 years of age. He said in 1982 when he was testifying that he had met Jesus whom he had recognized from, quote, holy cards, unquote. He testified that he'd also met Moses and Buddha. And that he, strangely enough, claimed that he already knew that he was to complete Jesus' mission in the world even before he had the vision that he said he underwent all the way back in 1920. And because of this and because of a number of other things, he began to write. And he wrote a book that ultimately has become part of the Bible for the Unification Church called Divine Principles. And we'll talk a little bit about that. I'll quote a little bit about that for you based on some of their teachings. And you will be amazed what the Unification Church really believes. In 1946, when Sun Myung Moon was, again, a fairly, a fairly provocative individual, a person who obviously had a great deal of intelligence, was being discipled, as it were, by another person who was called Elder Kim. And that is when Elder Kim changed Moon's name to Sun Young Moon, which means shining sun and moon. And in this discipleship, he underwent the title of reverend, for which he then had no, at least as far as I could tell in my studies, no official ordination, but simply just took on the title and began what we know now as the ministry of the Unification Church. But it's interesting. Sun Young Moon was a person who had a very, very uh, difficult and very, very sinful past. In fact, in the area of his sexuality, uh, he is a person who is not to be a model for us at all. Now, shortly after the Second World War, he drifted uh, to and fro. He drifted in and out of Pentecostalism, for one. But he began to try to blend all of these things. The... Uh, Jesus that he said he had the vision of, Confucius, Muhammad, Buddha, all appeared to him, he said, and he began this amalgamation of all of these religious truths. Now, this is what he believes. This is what he says. He believed that he actually had a vision in which he faced off with Satan himself. And that he questioned Satan about the fall of Adam and Eve until he was told by Satan that Adam and Eve in the fall had done something for which the Bible doesn't address. And here's what they say. He claims that he conquered Satan and accomplished what no other man before him had done, even including Jesus. According to Moon, the fall of Adam and Eve was Eve's sexual intercourse with Satan. And then, secondly, her passing on of this sexual sinful act, of the sin of sexual intercourse with Adam, 
before he had matured to perfection, and thereby the fall itself was really an illicit falling between Adam and Eve because, because of this prior sexual relationship between Satan and Eve. Now you say, well, how does a person even come up with some ridiculous notion like that? Well, obviously, there is within this man some desire because of his own sexual immorality to concoct a plan that sees somehow the sexual relationship of men and women of having to go through some kind of cleansing, which I'll talk about in a moment, for which then the world could rid itself of sinfulness. Here are some of the things that Moon believes regarding that. There were several reports in his early life that he was very sexually immoral. There are several reports bearing examination concerning Moon's marriages. He was also a bigamist. That is, he married more than one wife at a time. He had promiscuous sexual affairs. He called them blood cleansings. In other words, he believed that because Satan and Eve had this sexual act together, and therefore Adam and Eve after that, they produced sinfulness in babies, and therefore the only way that you could really have a blood cleansing was to have a sexual relationship with Moon himself in order for him to work the work of cleansing on your behalf because he defeated Satan. Now, that's a very convenient way to be immoral, isn't it? In fact, when he established the Unification Church on May 1st of 1954 in Seoul, Korea, he was arrested on July 4th, 1955 for immorality, for irresponsible sexual activity that caused a scandal at a women's Methodist university in Seoul. Several Korean newspapers covered this story. It was very, very out in the open as to what he had done, what he'd been accused of. He was released on October 4th, 1955, because the 80 women involved in the incident exercised their right of silence in court. You say 80 women? Yes, apparently so. And he began to teach that this blood cleansing, this rite, where a woman was to have sexual intercourse with Moon to cleanse her blood from Satan's lineage. And this became one of the rituals within the Unification Church. And again, was based upon the doctrine that Eve fell by having intercourse with Satan. And therefore, a woman who would have intercourse with Moon, who he calls by his own admission about himself, he calls himself the Lord of the Second Advent, would then be, because of this sexual cleansing with Moon, would become a cleansed person. Just as Eve passed Satan's tainted blood lineage onto Adam, likewise the cleansed unification member passes purification of their blood onto their spouse unless they're cleansed through a sexual act with Sun Young Moon. Now, obviously, this man has major problems major issues in his life. But you will find that so many of these cult members, as they start these movements, are usually starting those movements either by financial or sexual gain, sometimes even both. And often their followers will try to suppress the information about these people and about their backgrounds so the movement can flourish, so that people will not really understand a lot about the person themselves. 
Moon married a particular gal in South Korea, I believe it was, while he was married to someone else. And he actually spent several months in prison because of his bigamy. Uh, she, the second person that he married, a person by the name of Kim X, spent ten months in prison because of this bigamous act. And because of that, there was obviously a divorce. And then he married again. He married a person by the name of Hak Ja Han in March of 1960 when he was 40 and she was 17. And she has since born to him 13 children. They call them 13 sinless children because of this cleansing act through the relationship with Moon himself. Their wedding took place in which they afterwards now refer to themselves as the mother and the father, the true parents of everyone who should truly believe. And it's amazing. Moon and his wife are known throughout the entire Unification Church as the true parents. And they have the power to bless all other marriages or to say no to those marriages. Incidentally, this is why the Unification Church conducts those massive weddings. Have you ever seen those? Massive weddings. In fact, there was one particular mass wedding that he presided over in which 300,000 couples married at one time. This is an amazing movement. Moon himself believed that God had appeared to him sometime later and told him to go to the United States of America. And he said, quote, I came to America primarily to declare the new age and new truth. This is why God appeared to me and told me to go to America to speak the truth. Unquote. And so he believed in obedience to that. In 1972, he began touring major U.S. cities. And you know that through the years, the Moonies have become quite profitable at doing what they're doing. They claim about three million people worldwide. It, it may be that they have less than that. They may even have less than that in the United States of America. They once had 37,000 members in America alone. But now the largest following of Moonies is in Japan. They have obviously collected a large amount of money through the years. In fact, I told you about that scrutiny first from a U.S. House of Representatives subcommittee and then the Internal Revenue Service in the late 1970s uh, ended up bringing charges against him. He went to trial, as I said, for tax evasion. And he turned that into religious persecution. You may have even seen that on the television. A scene that he was going to court, and you remember when he went to court and he said on that particular day, the only reason why I am being put on trial is because my skin is yellow and I'm religious. For which, unwittingly, when he was released from prison, a number of people who would purport themselves to be Christians, some on the more liberal side, but even some evangelicals, including Jerry Falwell himself, called upon President Reagan at the time to pardon Sun Young Moon. So they have a very, very large following. And in fact, the Unification Church spent $4.5 million dollars to clear Moon's name. They did it with a mass mailing 
to all kinds of pastors. In fact, 300,000 pastors in the United States were sent an unsolicited mailing. It contained videotapes and books, an introductory letter from one of the uh, leaders of the Unification Church, all with the idea of saying that he has been falsely accused. This is nothing more than religious persecution. And as I said, so many within the sort of liberal mainstream of Christianity, but not excluding all of those and certainly including even some evangelicals. Uh, some of those who filed court briefs that are called Amici briefs, friends of the court, on their behalf were the National Council of Churches, the National Association of Evangelicals, the United Presbyterian Church, the American Baptist Churches, the American Methodist Episcopal Church, the Unitarian Universalist Association, the National Black Catholic Clergy Caucus, and the American Jewish Congress. All on August 20th, 1985, standing by and standing behind the Reverend Moon. And in fact, there was a celebration when he was released from prison on August 20th of 1985. And as I said, with even Jerry Falwell as the main speaker. So there's a fair amount of intimidation that goes on with some of these men where they have high level associations, even with those who I'm sure were duped by such a thing. Well, that's a little bit about the Unification Church. Let me tell you about some of their distinctive features, and then we'll go in as we have before in terms of their theology. There are really two distinct features of the Unification Church that uh, you and I would see, at least on the face of what they do. One is their fundraising tactics, and they've raised millions and millions of dollars from doing that. For instance, Moon gloats all the time about all of the huge profits from the public for the sale of those flowers and other, thing, other things. He gloats about it all the time. In fact, what it takes for them to make one of those flowers, it costs them 80 cents to make one of those flowers, and they sell that flower for a $5 donation. That's a pretty good return on your money, isn't it? At one point, he told his followers that he would train them to make $30 million monthly. And that if they would do that, he would purchase the Empire State Building. In all, Moon receives annually approximately $100 million from donations. Annually. He receives $35 million from the United States annually, $20 million from Europe in charitable donations. And in fact... These teams that go out, they're called MFTs, Mobilized Fundraising Teams, often work 14 or more hours a day, little sleep, sparse food, and they all believe they're doing it for God, Reverend Moon. A lot of them have many, many troubles and trials and tribulations that we don't know anything about. Some of them uh, have accidents when they go out and they go in their cars and uh, because they're obviously emaciated, so many of them were without, without food, without sleep. Some of them are just just uh, hysterical. They're, they're in all kinds of hallucinations. Uh, they're not fed well. They're, they're programmed to believe such things. Uh, they're programmed to not believe such things. And some of them are just out of it. If you've ever tried to talk to any of them, some of them don't appear as though they even have much of a mind left. In fact, in one particular month, Moon admitted that 82 accidents had occurred just with 
the Moonies who were collecting money in the United States. They were just having car accident after car accident. They have all kinds of business relationships. All of this money is being pumped into all of these conservative causes. They have, if you can believe this, 335 businesses worldwide. They have 280 legitimate businesses in the United States. They produce weapons, soft drinks, ginseng products, computers, automobile parts, heavy machinery, and clothing. They own convenience stores, real estate, fishing fleets, daily newspapers, magazines, and journals. One estimate is that the Unification Church controls $10 billion worth of businesses. I mean, it is an amazing thing that this one man has done. I told you about the Washington Times. It is indeed one of the most respected daily newspapers of any conservative voice in the United States of America. And if you were to know what Reverend Moon believes, you would shudder to think that anybody would be involved in anything that he's involved with. What does he believe? Well, here are some of the things that he believes. And I want you to have your Bibles ready because I want you to tell me how these things can be refuted. He said that when Jesus came to earth, His mission was to save man physically and spiritually by getting married. This is what Moon believes. The Jews, John the Baptist and his, his disciples, failed to form a family unit with him and find Christ a suitable bride. And because of their failure, Christ then chose to die on a cross and save mankind, but save him only spiritually. And instead of saving man in those two ways, physically and spiritually, corresponding to the fall of man who then died physically and spiritually, Jesus saved man only spiritually, and in comes the Reverend Moon. It was necessary for another Messiah to come to finish Jesus' incomplete work by finding the perfect bride, marrying that perfect bride, and establishing a God-centered family through which sinless children could be born because of the marriage of a Messiah to that perfect bride. In this way, then, sin would be eradicated from the world and man would then ultimately be saved physically and spiritually. And that's why I told you that uh, they're so much involved in these mass weddings. Uh, the two distinctives are their fundraising techniques and these mass weddings. That particular uh, mass wedding that happened with those 300,000 people happened on August 6, 1995, in which all 300,000 exchanged their vows. You say, what happened after that? What did these couples do? What was their responsibility? Where, where, well, every couple spent the following 40 days in celibacy. And then they consummated their marriage for three days only to practice three additional years of celibacy. Now, can you imagine the pressure on these couples to, to respond to this kind of teaching and this kind of behavior? Sun Young Moon believes himself to be the Lord of the Second Advent. Here's a speech that he gave. He said, quote, I am now in the position of Lord of the Second Advent to the world. But with my emergence as the victorious Lord of the Second Advent for the world, a new order has come into being. 
End quote. Now, you will often hear from the Moonies themselves that Moon does not claim to be a Messiah or the Messiah. But even by their own writings, that has been stated over and over and over again. One such example is Dr. Kim Sudo's 120 day training manual, which states this, quote, then they can understand that Reverend Moon is Messiah, Lord of the Second Advent. And another quote, if only they can understand the fall of man, they can understand that father, that's who they refer to Moon as being, father is the Messiah. Unless people can understand father is Messiah, then they cannot move in, cannot be a part of the Moonies. Well, how does that relate to the Scripture? What does the Scripture say about Jesus' death? Where would you go in your Bible if you were to try to prove that the Unification Church is wrong, that Sun Myung Moon is wrong, when he said that Jesus did not atone for the sins of his people physically? How would you respond to that? If Moon is saying that Jesus failed in his attempt to atone for man's sin physically, only spiritually, and that Moon has come along and done us a tremendous favor by marrying this woman and producing this heavenly relationship, and that he, in fact, is the Messiah then to bring salvation to men physically, how would you refute that? What would you say? Are there passages which speak of Jesus' death on the cross as having secured our salvation both physically and spiritually? Curtis? All right, good. There are a couple of passages that he mentioned. Acts 4.12, there is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Instead of trying to go into this idea of the physical or spiritual atonement of Christ, you can go right to those passages which speak of Christ's atonement as being fully complete as being that once-for-all sacrifice for which no other sacrifice needs to be made. I think Hebrews 10.12, Hebrews 12.2. Where else would you go? Andy? Good. 1 Corinthians 15, Andy says, which talks about the bodily resurrection of Christ. Now, you could even go to, for instance, some uh, passages that speak of the resurrection of Christ, that speak of His bodily resurrection as the, as the fulfillment not only of His Messiahship, but also the first fruits of a resurrection that's going to come in which we as believers also will rise again from the dead in bodily form. That seems to suggest not only a bodily salvation, but a bodily resurrection, right? You can go right to those resurrection passages. What else? Earl? Very good. John 17 that talks about Jesus finishing or accomplishing the work. Moon is obviously incorrect when he says that Jesus' work on the cross was some sort of a plan B. That plan A failed and plan B now is the uh, securing of salvation but spiritually only. No, he completed all of the work that the Father had him to do. What other passages might you go to? Are there any passages that actually speak of Christ redeeming the bodies of believers? Val?
Very good. Some of those Hebrews passages are very crucial. I'm thinking of actually, though, some passages which speak of what Christ did on the cross to secure not just our spiritual salvation, but our ultimate physical deliverance. Can you think of any passages in that regard? Yes. Good. John 11, again, speaking about resurrection. I'm thinking of one that you might not have readily thought of, and that is Isaiah 53. What does Isaiah 53 say regarding our stripes? It says, by his stripes we are what? We have stripes. We have, uh, we have physical maladies in our body. We have death. We have disease. We have sickness. And by the stripes of Christ, our physical blows, our stripes, are going to be healed. Now, we would say that it doesn't necessarily mean that Christ's salvation is going to include the immediate physical restoration of our bodies from disease or from sickness. But surely everyone, every Bible-believing Christian believes that ultimately Isaiah 53 is a promise that says the physical diseases and sicknesses in a Christian's body will be healed by His stripes, by His atoning work. That is a great passage for which you could say to a Mooney, now wait, in Isaiah 53, it says explicitly, by His stripes, we are healed. And it's not just talking about some sort of a spiritual sickness there. It's talking about bodily infirmity. And that ultimately the cross of Christ has the power not only to raise some, uh, someone from the dead, but produce this new body with no physical deformity whatsoever. That's a great passage. Are there any other passages that might speak of the, of the physical dimensions of the cross of Christ and what it might mean? Mike? Romans 8.23. Read it for us. Oh, very good. Romans 8.23. The redemption of our body. There's a promise there that when God's plan of redemption is complete, that we will see not only the redemption of our souls spiritually. In fact, that's already happened the moment we believe, right? But we will ultimately see the very redemption of our bodies. That's a great text, Mike, that would speak against what the Unification Church believes in this regard. All right, Bob? What does it say, Bob? 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. You see, there's no way around the implication of a number of these passages that speak about our physical death. But it also speaks about our physically rising from the dead to meet the Lord in the air. And of course, Paul is saying comfort one another with these things, which means 
that Christ, when he died for the sins of everyone who would believe, would ultimately, because of that full and complete and final sacrifice, would be able by his own power to resurrect that believer and reunite their physical bodies with their souls for perfection, for glory. That's what the Bible teaches. Yes, Curtis, and then I'll go to Charlie. Yeah, we are the recipients of every gift that God has ordained for us, including the redemption, the restoration of our bodies. In fact, there are so many passages that we could go to that talk about the restoration of all things. It's not just the idea that our, the creation is going to be recreated into the new heavens and the new earth, but that our own physical bodies being re- reunited with our souls are going to be to the glory of God. We're going to have these bodies as a result of Christ's atoning work be completely made new. You can't move around those passages in the New Testament. Charlie? Very good. That's another excellent passage. In fact, the First uh, Peter two twenty four. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For his, by, by his wounds you were healed. Obviously, a reference to the Isaiah fifty three is again a, a great New Testament passage. Doctor Winger. Very good. See, that, that nails the issue. Philippians 3, that nails the concept that when Christ died on the cross, He didn't die just for the spiritual lives of believers. That He died also for the physical bodies of those who had those bodies racked by sin and that because of His glorious body, we too will receive a glorious body. That's great. Alright, let's move on to how the Moonies view the Bible. I mentioned to you that the Moonies believe about Revelation in general, that they would affirm the Bible, but they would also affirm what Moon has written called divine principles. Here are some of the quotes that Moon has written in this book, which Moonies believe are every bit a part of God's revelation to man. They believe that the Bible is considered to be Scripture, but they believe that it should be really essentially replaced by this divine principles book of Moon. Quote, this is what he taught. The Bible, however, is not the truth itself, but contains the truth. What does that sound like? That sounds like liberalism, doesn't it? The Bible is not the truth itself, but contains the truth. To say that the Bible is not truth, but only contains truth, is to cast doubt upon its authority. Is that not so? I mean, if you were to say some, some way and by some means that the Bible contains truth, but the Bible itself is not truth, then what is the horns of a dilemma for the Christian to determine? 
Well, what what part in it is not truth? And how can I know that? And how can I know which part is truth and which part is not truth? How can I determine that in and of myself? It's it's not enough just to say that the Bible contains truth. As evangelicals, we affirm that the Bible is truth. The Bible gives us the revelation of God to man, and that's the only place we receive that revelation. How would you respond to a Mooney who might say, well, I believe that the Bible, the, the, the Christian's Bible, the Old and New Testaments, apart from divine principles from our teacher and Messiah, Reverend Moon, I believe that that contains truth. But I don't believe it's truth itself. Or, what they might say is, I don't believe that that's all truth. What would you say? How would you respond to that? Who spoke? James? 2 Timothy 3.16, which says what? All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Yes. But what if this person you were talking to, maybe in an airport, maybe with uh, their desire to have you have one of their flowers for $5, what if they said to you, well, we believe that all Scripture is indeed inspired by God, but we don't believe that that means only the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. Keith? Okay, that, that's a great passage. <laughs> you know, I missed that verse. That would probably be the verse to share with them, wouldn't it? Here's what the introduction to divine principle says. This truth, this truth of divine principles, this truth must appear as a revelation from God Himself. Listen to this. This new truth has already appeared. God has sent His messenger. His name is Sun Young Moon. That's what they believe. That's what they believe about Him. I'll share a verse with you. Psalm 119, verse 151. Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy commandments are truth. Now, wouldn't that be a great passage to share with them? And then the burden would be on them to, to prove to you which of the statements of Scripture are not truth and why. Remember, I said to you, one of the great ways to defend your faith is when someone says something like, well, the Bible has truth, but the Bible does not completely contain the truth you might say to them, all right, tell me which passages you believe not to be true in Scripture. Put the burden on them to tell you what is not true as stated in Scripture. And then share with them a passage like Psalm 119, verse 151. All thy commandments are true. Bob? Thy word is truth. John 17, 17. You might even expand on that and say the only way 
for the Christian, the true Christian, to receive his sanctification is thy word. Thy word is truth. I saw another hand. Yes, Jennifer. Very good. John 14.6 If Sun Young Moon believes that he is the sort of latter-day Messiah to bring about the physical redemption of mankind to complete the work of Christ, John 14.6 begs to differ. John 14.6 says that Christ is the only way. The Acts 4.12 passage would work very well there also. Curtis? Yes, Second Peter 1, 3 and 4. Seeing that His promises have given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through these precious promises then, we can escape the corruption caused in the world by lust. But those precious promises have for us everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. We don't need divine principles. We don't need that book. We don't need Science and Health with Key to the Scripture by Mary Baker Eddy. We don't need the Pearl of Great Price, Doctrine and Covenants, the Book of Mormon. We don't need the Watchtower Track Society. We don't need the New World Translations of the Holy Scriptures. We need to study our Bibles so that we can affirm what evangelicalism affirms in general, and that is, Thy Word is truth. Alright? Let's move on. Our time is fleeting. How about the concept of God in unification theology? How about the concept of God? As I told you, there's this blend of Eastern mysticism and Confucianism and Taoism. How do they relate God to their people? Well, apparently, Reverend Moon believes in what is commonly called Yang and Yin or Yin and Yang, which is what? Someone tell me what that is. You remember that signal, that little symbol that you sometimes see where you see a little bit of a curved figure on one side and a curved figure on the other that sort of blends together? What does that mean? Do you know what that means? What's that? Good. Good and evil balance each other. Negative and positive. It's sort of a dualism, dual characteristics. And Reverend Moon believes that about God, that God has a white side and a black side. A good side and a dark side. Now you see all of the stuff of Eastern mysticism of which all of the Star Wars movies are based. You recognize that when you see any of those movies? You see the Eastern mysticism which is clearly coming through in those movies. The dark side and the force. The black, the white, the good, the bad, the dualism that's there. The positivity, the negativity. The standard symbol representing Taoism is a circle with an S curve through the middle. That's what I'm mentioning when I mention that little symbol. God is white and black simultaneously, according to Moon. He's positive and negative. He's male and female. He's subject and object. He's yang and yin. That's what he believes about the person of God. He apparently has no understanding, or at least it doesn't come out in his writings, of the eternal, undivided nature of the essence of God. What would we do if we were going to attempt to refute Moon's view of God? What would we say about God? Does He have a yang and yin? Does He have a good and bad? What Scriptures might refute that? Yes. First John 1.5, which says, 
Very good. Great passage that speaks of the fact that there is no blackness along with the whiteness of God. In fact, there are many passages which speak of the purity of God. What are some of those passages which speak of the positive side? There is no darkness. That's saying that there's no negativity or sinfulness in God. What are some of the passages which speak of the purity of God, the sinlessness of God? Yes. Bob? Yes. What about the uh, passage which speaks of God looking upon sin? You remember that passage? You remember that? Which passage is it? It's a great passage that talk about, talks about God not being able to look upon evil. That His eyes are purer. Mark? Oh, okay. Which one is that? The Lord is righteous in all His ways. Very good. You can't come up with a theology that says there's, there's blackness or there's darkness in God and yet come to a place of affirming that kind of passage. What passage am I thinking of? What's that? Habakkuk 1.13, which says what, Dr. Z? Excellent. Thou cannot look on wickedness with favor. How can you have a yang and a yin, a good and a bad, a black and a white, when Habakkuk speaks of God's eyes being so pure that he cannot look upon sin? What about James chapter 1? What does it say about God and temptation? It says, God tempts no man, nor can he himself be Tempted. How can you have a theology of God that speaks of God having some sort of blackness to Him, a black side, a dark side, when it says that God tempts no one, nor can He Himself be tempted? James chapter 1. Yes, Charlie? Yes. You know, in, in Mooney theology, if we can call it that, they deny not only the person of God, but they deny the deity of Christ. They deny also the Trinity. They deny the vicarious atonement of Christ. They deny the crucifixion of Christ. They deny the resurrection of Christ. In fact, Moon says that all of those things, the vicarious atonement, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus, were all an unplanned mistake. Quote, the crucifixion of Jesus was a universal tragedy. The suffering of Jesus on the cross was not the will of God, nor was it an event predestined by God. The crucifixion of Jesus was a secondary choice after it became obvious that He would not be able to fulfill His mission. His book, Divine Principles, says, Redemption by the cross has been unable to remove our original sin. 
We therefore must realize that Jesus did not come to die on the cross. Today, the Christian gospel preaches salvation by the blood of Jesus. How ridiculous that is in the sight of God. Unquote. I mean, it's just heresy, just blasphemy. And we must respond to these things. If you were to talk with any of them, how many of you have ever talked with a loony in an airport? Yeah, Chris has. Wasn't it in an airport? This, this cult is very, very insidious. And you have to be very, very careful. You might say, well, why don't we just run away from them? Well, in some ways it might be better if we were able to do that, but these people need to hear the gospel too, don't they? In fact, I mentioned to you a moment ago about one of the Moonies, Chris Elkins, who was a former Mooney, and now he's a believer, and he was a part of a film called Heavenly Deception. I've seen the film. I think it's very, very good. He talks about this and talks about some of these deprogrammers who try to come in and try to rescue these people. And he says that's not effective. In fact, he was asked if he recommends deprogramming. And he said, no, it often doesn't work. In cases of deprogramming that I'm familiar with, nearly 50% return to the cult. He adds, I don't think brainwashing is the method of the Unification Church. When asked about freedom to leave the cult, Elkin said many Moonies leave the Unification Church on their own free will. In fact, the turnover is very high. Some estimates have it that one-third of the membership leaves the Unification Church every two years. And so you know what that tells me? It tells me that there are some of those who even in the midst of selling these flowers and doing these good works that they believe is going to allow them to, to be seen as good in the eyes of Reverend Moon and therefore uh, develop this salvation that they so desperately desire, are actually looking for the opportunity to find out what truth really is. And it's every opportunity for us to reach out to them and to share the gospel with them, the true gospel, and hope and believe and pray that God would use our very words as we share the gospel to bring them to a place of conviction of sin and to bring them to a place of renouncing this and coming to Jesus Christ in true repentance and faith and finding out about the true Christ of the gospel. Wouldn't it be so liberating for these people to come to a place of acknowledging that they had been deceived and that they're now coming to a true vision of who Jesus Christ really is. Let's, let's pray to that end and let's understand what this cult is all about. And if you come in contact with any of, any of them, remember, as I've told you several times now, as a result of this series, I've come in contact with a number of these people. The Mormons just showed up at my door last week. Let's pray and ask God to make sure that we know what our faith is about so that we can have these verses in mind so therefore we can talk to these people boldly about the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful tonight that You have delivered us from such damning religion. We know, Father, that there are so many who are caught, caught in this cult, hundreds of thousands in our own country, many hundreds of thousands around the world who desperately need this blessed gospel that we 
say that has so radically altered our lives. And Father, I pray that as we understand cults like this, if for nothing else, even if You didn't call upon us to defend our faith against any one of them, You would buy what we have learned tonight and what we know about our own salvation. We would glory and rejoice in what You have done in saving us. For any of us could have been lured away just like them into a cult of damning proportions, massive proportions. And yet in Your sovereign mercy, You have saved us. And You called us with a holy calling so that we might respond in truth to those who blaspheme who You are. I pray, Father, that as we continue to work and move in our own sphere of influence, that whether it's a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or a Christian science person, or a Seventh-day Adventist, or a Unification Church person, a Mooney, that You would allow us the privilege and the opportunity, even the obligation at that point, to share with them this wonderful, life-granting Gospel. And I pray that You would grant us such a privilege because we do want to defend our faith. Boy, what a joy it would be, Father, to see someone come out of a cult like that. Maybe there's even someone who is a relative of ours, a close friend, someone that we know, a, a neighbor whose son has been snatched away by one of these cults. And how we might be used to speak with them. Lord, I thank You that even this morning, one of our own members came to me and said, would you be willing to meet with my brother who is a Mormon? He wants to meet with you. He wants to talk with you about what you believe and about what he believes. Lord, I pray that you would go before me in such a conversation. And that this one would be delivered from this damning religion. I thank you for this people and I pray that you would continue to arm them with your truth so that we can adequately defend our faith. We praise You and thank You in Christ's name. Amen.